We're back. We mentioned at the top of the program that we might be joined by some old pals. And, and of course, we have no older a pal on the show than Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, heard every week on this same station, KDVS, Wednesdays at 5 o'clock. It's a great pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Andy. Hello, Dr. Doug. This is my favorite show on KDVS. <laughs> it's great to be back on Radio Parallax. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you back. Uh, we are doing, of course, our, our look back, sort of, at the year in review, and we can't think of anybody better than you to do this with, because every week you have to come up with current event questions for the pub quiz. That's true. I host a pub quiz in town, which I very much enjoy doing, and as a result, I've got to put together questions that actually appeal to people who follow the news, and as a result, I follow politics geopolitical events, disasters, warfare, etc., etc. Not the sort of thing that I get to cover very thoroughly, if at all, on Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. So I'm pleased to help you fill some time and talk about 2011 as we look over uh, the disasters and the rare victories <laughs> of this year that's just passed. Well, I would say you are Northern California's answer to Peter Segel's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Well, that's that's very kind. I have far fewer comedy writers than he does. <laughs> you don't have Carl Castle at all, so... That's true. I think it is a great scam they have on that show to uh, offer 45 seconds of Carl Castle's time as the prize. I'm sure that, that helps uh, keep that show coming in under budget every single week. And put its lameness factor somewhere into the stratosphere. <laughs> Well, um, you know, the, the diehard NPR types, they, uh, they go gaga for the possibility of uh, a brush with Carl Castle. <laughs> Plus the bragging rights for all of their upper-class NPR-addicted friends to phone in and, and hear Castle's voice when yeah. they leave a message. Sad, really. Of course, in composing these questions for this pub quiz, I'd like to look back and Come up with some of the ones you thought were more memorable in terms of maybe their quirkiness, because we, we like the quirk, quirky stuff. You want quirky news stories or quirky questions? Well, both. Uh, both. What, uh, weird things always happen in a given year, and I'm sure that, uh, that those are kind of the, um, the curveball questions for people in the pub quiz. Like, were you, if you were paying attention, did you notice, you know, X? I've got a rule at the pub quiz. I don't know if I've uh, talked to you about this. And it's the tomato rule in that I'm not allowed to ask any questions that would motivate a participant to throw a tomato at me. <laughs> so my questions, they don't get too obscure. Rather, they're supposed to be head slappers. Like, I knew I knew that, why did I not come up with the answer? Rather than something that a participant has never heard of. <laughs> so I, I do ask quirky questions from time to time, but usually they have something to do with tricky wording. For instance, uh, this past Monday at the De Vere's Irish Pub Pub Quiz, I asked the question, what brownish-yellow synonym for burnish is also a fan? That's just the sort of question that uh, did earn me some enemies. <laughs> but if, uh, if someone were to know that burnish means to buff something and that a fan is a 
buff as well, like a history buff such as yourself, then uh, it becomes quite easy. But actually only three or four teams uh, this past Monday got that question right. Hmm. So th- that, that's uh, kind of tricky. But when it comes to uh, following the news, I'm usually a little bit more straightforward because I'm glad that people want to be informed at all about what's going on during the week. Well, some people do. Um, and, and let's just randomly pull one out then. What, uh, what, uh, give us an example of one of the types of questions. Well, in terms of uh, uh, a question that I asked this past week that, that not everyone got, it was what did the AP say in terms of their polling to be the biggest news story of 2011? Fair enough. And uh, we were talking about this uh, um, the other night uh, as part of our extensive prep for this segment. <laughs> and uh, and um, like my wife and my daughter and a lot of people at DeVere's last Monday, uh, you didn't come up with it on the, the first guest. And so I'll tell uh, your folks listening at home that the answer is actually the death of Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And so you wondered yourself if that was uh, the biggest news story of uh, 2011, so that might be a, a good place to start when we think about the importance of this past year. When you, when you mentioned that to me, I was I was quite thunderstruck by one of the answers that someone gave for what was the biggest news story of the past year, relating to one of our more wayward actors. Right, Charlie Sheen. <laughs> I guess you have to have a, a pretty... Um, narrow and obsessive view of the news in order to pick that as uh, the biggest news story. It might have been one of the stories that people were talking about the most mm-hmm. on Entertainment Tonight and in People Magazine, but uh, I think most reputable news organizations did not spill a lot of ink over Charlie Sheen. And I'm pretty confident that sometime in the year 2500, as historians look back at our era, they won't think of Sheen's Torpedo of Truth tour is being one of the earth-shaking events. <laughs> I don't think so. And that's a good way of putting it. You know, what are the events that will be quickly forgotten? There were a great number of uh, actors who were prominent in the 19th century in uh, the United States, but I bet you and I, as learned and well-read as we are, <laughs> can probably only think of the name of one of them. Uh, John Wilkes Booth? That's correct. <laughs> And so uh, all of the obsessions that people had over actors uh, a century and a half ago, you can see that uh, most of them, probably like Charlie Sheen and other celebrities of our day, will have been uh, largely forgotten. Well, uh, on the on conversely, I'd say something like the uh, the tsunami in Japan is something they'll be talking about, uh, you know, a long time into the future. I think so, in part because not only was it so disastrous for Japan but because it made us all reassess our uh, dependence to the extent that we are dependent upon nuclear energy and our preparedness for uh, the sort of disasters that we've been told over and over again by the nuclear regulatory agencies that these sort of things are not likely to happen. And uh, when there is a nuclear disaster, then the effects can actually stay with us for centuries. And I know that the people of Japan are still, are still wrestling with that. It's such, I, I've been there twice in the last couple of years, uh, and I found in terms of relations um, among the, the people who I interacted with and also the, uh, the cleanliness of the cities that I visited, 
It's a very um, orderly country and a country that uh, prides itself in terms of its uh, adherence and respect for tradition, uh, respect for hierarchies. And something like this uh, really shook the country to its core. And we're not going to know the full ramifications uh, with regard to uh, radiation, for example, for a long time yet. Yes, as you well know, in this program, we've taken, if not exactly a pro-nuclear stance, a, a very definitely non-anti-nuclear stance in many instances. And I have to say, this was, uh, I was a little disappointed by the Japanese not anticipating a 9.0 earthquake on their coast. That, that seemed to have been a bit of a, a little lack of foresight there. Well, yeah, and, and I think that they did anticipate it in the way that they've built some of their taller buildings in the last 20 or 30 years. <laughs> But, uh, but not with regard to, um, you know, and I'm no expert, but the, the cooling systems <laughs> and the electricity needed to run those systems in the event that something like this would happen. To quote our good friend Will Durst, if you're in a tsunami-prone area, don't put the diesel generators in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> I would think so. Let's see. I've got I've got the Week magazine year in review in front of me, which is a kind of a couple page summary of, of things that took place. And and one thing that uh, I think sadly always seems to take place every four years is the great horse race election cycle that goes on. And uh, the Republican Party seems to be I don't know trying to select the biggest numbskull in the land I think to run against Obama. And uh, that just we can't get that one out of the news. That's just that's just a, something we live have to live with. It's really an interesting dynamic because all the energy seemed to be with these Tea Party folks, especially with the interim election, uh, you know, year, year and a half ago. And as a result, the Republican Party uh, moved to the right radically and uh, gained all sorts of confidence. And all of these politicians are trying to figure out, if I were to run for president, how do I respond to this? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the answer in most cases is, I will also radically move to the right. <laughs> or, you know, the people who were more moderate Republicans just chose not to run for president. And as a result, it seems to me like a kind of circular firing squad, all of these <laughs> uh, presidential candidates, because uh, they've learned that negative ads work, and they've learned that uh, the way to sway the uh, conservative voters of Iowa, especially, and also New Hampshire to a certain extent, is to um, seem more closed-minded, more intolerant of any kind of immigration, more intolerant of uh, gays and lesbians in this country, to, to such an extent that um, most of us, we, we look at these folks and what they're saying, and it seems like another world. It just seems like... Uh, the oddest bunch of right-wing nut jobs ever to run for president, such that if Ronald Reagan were to be running today, he'd be the, the most moderate, one might even say liberal person up on the stage. Andy, I'm not sure Barry Goldwater could make the cut in terms of conservatism <laughs> with this bunch. Absolutely. And I've learned some things about Barry Goldwater from, from your show. <laughs> he was a principled gentleman, but I don't know that uh, he would feel at all comfortable with, uh, with this cache of candidates. Someone said last week, just let them do what they're doing. Don't get in their way. <laughs> and, um, and from my perspective, I hope that that uh, turns out to be 
a prescient statement. And now the latest, I don't know if you've heard about this, there are many conservative uh, preachers and ministers in Iowa who are insisting that Rick Santorum and Michelle Bachman uh, combine their candidacies, that one of them declare as president, the other as vice president, before New Year's <laughs> in order for all of the, uh, the right-wing Republicans, the conservative Republicans, to uh, choose two candidates and two candidates only, and thereby uh, defeat either Gingrich or Romney or Paul, uh, with whom the conservative uh, ministers and preachers all have uh, different problems and, and objections. But, but that's an interesting idea as well, that they're getting so desperate that a shotgun marriage has been proposed. Well, I certainly hope Michelle Bachman, who was told by God to become a tax lawyer, <laughs> Rick Santorum. I'm also looking at another section of the week. The Canadians were, were sort of looking down at what's going on in our country with, with much glee and amusement. They were noting that Rick Santorum is the guy who said that extending marriage rights to gays will lead to, quote, you know, man on dog. <laughs> another one of the rallies had someone carrying a poster, uh, two women walking hold in hand, saying... Um, we're sorry, Michelle Bachman, that we have ruined your marriage <laughs> because of the longtime suggestion that uh, marriage as we know it will, um, will come to an end as soon as uh, gays and lesbians marry. Yeah. Chris, I, I don't know if you caught our, our quote about, uh, I don't know who said this originally, about Newt Gingrich. Uh, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel saying that, um, that apparently Newt Gingrich is defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman without cancer. That is harsh. Yes, it is, but he, not, that, not that he doesn't have it coming. Right. He has um, gone through so many wives. I think that's one of the reasons why he's been trying to get the endorsement of Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, because Trump, with his um, multiple dalliances, actually makes uh, Gingrich look pretty good. I think Newt's only one behind Osama bin Laden at this point. Is that correct? <laughs> There's a pub quiz question. <laughs> he did say today or at least Team Gingrich did, fifth place in Iowa would not be too bad. <laughs> and to think that just 10 days ago or so, uh, he was at the top of the polls. Further evidence that negative uh, ads work. Wow. Talk about lowering expectations. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Ron Paul, who most likely is going to uh, win the, the Iowa caucus, uh, has all of these newsletters from the 1980s attached to his name, meaning that uh, they'd go out to people and they'd be signed Ron Paul, mm -hmm. uh, that used all sorts of uh, racist and homophobic slurs and rhetoric mm -hmm. that make uh, you know, Republicans very uncomfortable, most of them. Hmm. But Ron Paul has uh, been so ardent in getting every single possible caucus goer to support him that he is unwilling to discount that, that possible support. And so now there is, as he continues to court the fringe, uh, there is uh, a new endorser who wants the death penalty for gays and lesbians. <laughs> I, guess, I guess just the fact of I have gay. to laugh because, wow. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and what, you know, what is Ron Paul, um, you know, how is he challenging that? What sort of world do we live in what sort of candidates do Republicans have to uh, choose from when um, everyone is uh, standing up to say that they're uh, more intolerant than the next person? <laughs>
Let's take a look back at some people who left us. We like to do uh, we like to do obituaries on our program to note the passing of people whose whose passing should be noted. And uh, boy, it was it was we lost a lot of people last year, and I, I'm sure that that probably played into some of your pub quiz questions as well. It did. I think many people uh, point to Steve Jobs as uh, the most important inventor of our age. That could be debated, but certainly that was a um, a huge loss, in part because it was unexpected. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, for example, has, um, had had uh, health problems for years, but uh, the cancer that Steve Jobs had wrestled with, um, he seemed for a number of years to have beaten it, even though he became so thin. And then um, when, when he died, people were shocked, and we got to think again about all the different ways that um, Apple products have, uh, have touched our lives. And that's uh, that's certainly true to me. I'm you know looking um, you know at this information through both uh, my MacBook Pro and my iPad right now, and I have uh, my iPhone right next to me here in case I uh, I get another call. So I'm you know certainly a Jobsian myself. Mm-hmm. But we might uh, also think about uh, um, Luxov Havel, who uh, was a, a hero of mine because he was a, a poet and playwright. Yeah, to, talk, talk uh, about him a bit. I, I, we meant to get around to speaking about him, but we have not yet done so. This would be a good time to do it. To talk a bit about uh, uh, this poet and playwright who became the president of, of Czechoslovakia. Absolutely. And he did it um, through something called uh, the, uh, the Velvet uh, Revolution. He was an anti-communist uh, hero who died at the age of uh, 75. And I think that um, in that part of uh, Europe, in that part of the world, People will look to him as we might look to uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., because Havel insisted on using a peaceful protest as a means of uh, bringing down communism in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. And uh, he was then his country's first democratically elected uh, president after that uh, nonviolent Velvet Revolution ended decades of uh, repression by a regime that he called um, absurdistan. <laughs> and it's such a, um, an odd phrase, but um, how wonderful that uh, someone in power was using um, odd and poetic phrases or could use theater as a means of uh, representing the absurdity of, uh, of repressive uh, regimes and of that form of, uh, of communism. So I think that uh, he was... He was certainly a, a hero of mine in that way because uh, it makes me think, well, um, under what circumstances could a poet or a playwright, could his ideas be uh, embraced by uh, a great number of people? Can poetry matter is a, a question that many of us in this uh, poetry business have, um, have often wrestled with. And uh, from Hubble's perspective, it could. It was the fact that he had been jailed and he had a chance to write and that he was... Uh, um, reflective and, and, and nonviolent, and that um, he could speak truth to power. These are all uh, elements that many of us associate with uh, poets and, and poetry. So uh, to me, I, uh, he's one of uh, Liberty's great heroes, and certainly um, an important loss for 2011, though, um, though again, not a, a surprising one. He was a, a chain smoker. Yeah. Uh, and so living to age 75, he was probably on, on borrowed time for uh, a number of years, but still a great man. I must say that uh, someone who's, who succeeds in politics, 
whose slogan was truth and love must prevail over lies and hatred. Well, that itself is amazing. Absolutely. Democrats can't even say that in this country. <laughs> there's, there's evidently hope for Dennis Kucinich here. He's going up against a, uh, a fellow Democrat to um, hold on to a, a seat in the House of Representatives, so we'll see how well he does. Well, we wish Dennis well on that one. You've had him on your show, haven't you, Doug? We, we, we did bring Dennis Kucinich on this program, one of our couple of presidential candidates. I'm, uh, I'm blanking. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the great things about Davis. And, by the way, you know, I, I feel a little bit remiss sometimes in that I, I do live in Sacramento, that I don't have my finger on the local pulse of the Davis community as well as I might, but yet you are a Davisite. Uh, talk about Davis in relation to what, uh, what took place in this last year. Of course, we made the national news with the, uh, with the, the pepper spraying incident. Absolutely. And that, was, um, and that comes up as an, a really important chapter of the Occupy movement. And I'd say that the Occupy movement is, is a, a forceful and, for many people, um, welcome counterbalance to uh, the Tea Party movement. I'd say that they're both populist in their ways. Uh, they both try to um, confront powerful interests. But uh, what excites me about the Occupy movement is that, uh, as was often the case in the 1960s, uh, young people are looking to the future and are really uh, upset and disgruntled about what especially um, bankers, investment bankers, Wall Street folks, what they've done to the economy, the economy that they're about to inherit and that they have to uh, pay for in terms of the extravagancies of of these um, folks who have racked up such um, huge bills by, uh, you know, defaulting on, for instance, the, the housing industry and, and what's happened with uh, the foreclosure crisis. Young people, including at UC Davis, have been taking the lead in uh, pointing out the, the problems, the inequalities that they see in our country, and considering some ways of um, addressing those inequalities. Now, um, from my perspective, I, I disagree with the folks who say that we need to scrap the um, the capitalist system, for example, I think that's going too far. But insofar as we're all talking now about the 99% versus the 1% and the massive uh, inequalities financially in this country and ways of making it possible for more and more people to um, have access to education rather than, as many people have said, letting a continued privatization of for instance, uh, public education in California, to, um, to allow that to continue to such an extent that uh, huge swaths of the American public, and often it's the, the lower middle class and the middle class who uh, have fewer opportunities to get the education that they need to make a better life uh, for themselves and their families once they, they graduate. So obviously at UC Davis, the approach, the stance was, was forceful, but the response was uh, um, overdramatic, and what was worse for uh, UC Davis, it was all filmed, and filmed by multiple, multiple iPhones right. in such a way that once upon a time we worried about the Big Brother state as a state that would be watching our every move. Big Brother is watching you, uh, the line went. But now it's the, uh, the youngsters with the cameras and a photographer from the Davis Enterprise who are actually watching the police officers, who are watching the authority figures. 
And uh, as a result, with the incredible communications technologies that we have ac access to now, um, an important image or an important uh, movie can be shared instantaneously with, uh, with millions. And that's what happened uh, at UC Davis, where one particular police officer has become a, uh, a symbol for this sort of uh, oppression in uh, the United States and also a symbol for a kind of uh, ham-handed uh, response to what is basically a, a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds who were sitting on the ground smiling, uh, locked arms, which is a, a long-understood symbol, one that Martin Luther King used, to say, um, I'm not offering violence, I'm offering uh, nonviolent response to authority, whether it be the fire hoses in the the 1950s and early 60s, or uh, pepper spray in 2011. Well, I, I certainly uh, know that story of Occupy Wall Street and Davis's role in it. That's not going to go away. And as, as this we come into this new year, we'll have to return to that. Maybe you can come back, and we can get some other people from the station to uh, to look at what's going on in general and locally. And there are some uh, people who've been involved. Many of them, many people would call them heroes, who uh, I think would be even. Uh, better authorities to talk on these issues. Um, I'm friends uh, with Fred Wood, who is uh, the Vice Chancellor for uh, Student Affairs at UC Davis, and I know him to be a, uh, a moral and upstanding guy who, like all of us, was um, shocked and disappointed and outraged by what he saw on, on YouTube. But I'm also good friends with uh, Bob Ostertag, who has been has been one of the most eloquent defenders of the students and pointing out uh, the problems that he sees with uh, not only Wall Street, but with uh, the UC Davis uh, administration. And I think both of these folks would be great guests for your uh, radio show. And I'm sure you will probably have them on as well, so maybe we can both, uh, we can both talk to these people. That would be good. Uh, I've had Bob Ostertag on before, but... Uh, more in his role as a professor of music and technocultural studies. To me, he is a, uh, a cultural hero. He, for instance, has um, most of the music that he has control over, uh, he gives away for free on his, uh, his website. Well, speaking of things professorial, being that you are an English professor, I'd like to, before we, have, before we lose you here today, uh, ask about a couple things. You mentioned about People referring to the, the capitalistic system and talk about socialism and capitalism. We studiously try to avoid ism, words on this program, because they mean things, different things to different people. And, and, and we've been calling out for a new word to describe words that are sort of deliberately vague, because that's sort of the language of politicians, the language of, of sometimes uh, in advertising. And... There is no such word that we know of. And, and so I was proposing a word, maybe something called nebulose, meaning something cloud-like, deliberately shapeless. Can uh, you see a role for this? There's always the word obscurantism. Do you know this word? Not as well as I should. <laughs> okay, well, I'll share it with you now. It's the practice of deliberately preventing the facts or the full details of some matter from becoming known. And so this comes through either uh, restricting knowledge or access to knowledge and, uh, and also through deliberate obscurity, such as through an abstruse uh, writing style or, or speaking style. 
So obscurantism might be the very word you're looking for. I don't think it quite captures the nuances that I in this, but you and I can do some wordsmithing on this and return to the topic. I hope we will. I look forward to that. <laughs> and one final thing. Fillet or fillet? We talked about this earlier in the program. I think you missed it. It's like, is the word French? Which is, which is correct. We know the British say fillet, but that may be just they're, they're thumbing the nose at the French as far as we know. Do you have an opinion? British people hate to pronounce things, uh, especially French words, in the ways that they're supposed to be pronounced. So um, I wouldn't go to them as a, a primary source for the correct pronunciation of a French term. I think it's fillet. I think so, too, but I'm, I'm not completely sure. So what, research must continue. Absolutely. These are exactly the sort of <laughs> important, hard-hitting facts that we've turned to Radio Parallax to clear up for us. I so appreciate that about your show. It's one of the reasons why I listen every week. Dr. Andy, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, we need to have you back on sooner. It's been a while, so don't be such a stranger, and let's, uh, let's, let's talk sometime soon. Thanks, Doug. I look forward to that. Thanks for having me on the show. Mm-hmm.